I've, I've told people before, if I lived in a college town, I would feel incredibly old, but I am Palm Springs young, baby. I am Palm Springs young. No offense to any of us in here today. So this last week, uh, obviously on Monday, we had our Tales from the Tour event. If you could pull up a few of those slides. Uh, we pulled this thing off. Uh, it was an extraordinary task. Uh, it, got, it cost a lot of money, and we, and, but you know what? We just felt called to do it. So Marty and Chris and the whole team, Dwayne the McNets, and all the team that worked so hard and security and everybody else, thank you. <laughs> And then, of course, interestingly enough, Tom Whitney, who was staying with the Hermans, uh, as a matter of fact, was in all the, all the, he was really the write-up because, you know, here's a guy that uh, had been four years, served in the military, was a nuclear missile operator, and he got his card at 34 off the Corn Ferry Tour last year, and so he was playing one of his first events on the tour, and so that was a big, big story, so that was getting kind of international news. And then Joe Highsmith, who was there, and, and Ann and Chris are obviously part of the Church of the Red Door when they're in town. And then he made a hole-in-one over in 13 on the stadium course, and that was making the round, shot of the day, and all that kind of thing. So uh, anyway, so what does that tell you? You need to be part of our Tales from the Tour event because, you know, good things happen to, you know, those kind of people. But we're going to be looking this morning that good things always, don't always happen. Good things do not always happen to wonderful people. Certainly was the case with... Jesus, at least in a momentary affliction kind of a vibe that Paul talks about. So let's pray. Lord, we, we want to magnify your word. Through magnifying the word, Jesus is magnified. He is the word become flesh. Lord, we, we just kind of bounce around on the earth trying to come to some conclusions about truth and reality, and then we you know, create our own reality in some ways, and we live, quote unquote, our own truth, and, and Lord, we live far from you oftentimes. And uh, it breaks my heart to see my past life trying to live independently of you and then obviously those around me now whom I love and I watch them live independent of your truth. And so, Lord, we, we come back to you with, on bended knee to say, teach us, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been working through Luke chapter 19. I want to reread this portion and we're going to just continue to camp out here. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Every, every week I just pray. I say, Lord, what's your word to your people? What do we need to do here? And, and, and things just kind of flow. It's, all, it's always the way I've taught. I've never been very systematic. And I think most of you have been around kind of know that. Uh, just, and it's not some strange kind of charismatic vibe, you know, just always. It just is a strong sense that, no, we, we, we've got more work to do here. And Lord, what do you want to say? And he's the ultimate shepherd, and I am a, just a small, well, as we're going to see, I'm an Ebed Melech this morning. I'm just a servant of the king or even a slave of the king. So Luke chapter 19, where's our context? It's Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And we've been seeing that there is a pattern detection that should be us. Uh, again, just to restate, we've got a new, few new folks. 
Even the Mensa IQ test is predicated upon an ability to recognize patterns. It's really one of the highest things for intelligence. And if that's true for just broad knowledge, not necessarily wisdom, if it's true for broad knowledge, it should also be applicable for spiritual realities. There are patterns God teaches us over and over and over. Hebrews 1 says that in many portions, in many ways, God spoke to the prophets, speaks to us, And so we can see a cyclicality of pattern that's in almost all of the prophets in various ways that then reflect Jesus, and then we are called to walk in Jesus' footsteps, and so it's instructive for us, well, even in the 21st century. So let's see this. It just seems kind of like an innocuous moment. Jesus is just weeping over the city, and but we've gone into quite detail over it, but let's reread it. Verse 41, Luke 19. So when he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why did he weep over it? He wept over it because he knew that some 40 years in the future that those Romans under Titus would come in and they would utterly demolish. It was a picture of utter destruction that was coming and he knew it was coming and he was weeping over it because he wanted them to embrace, well, him, And some did, but most didn't. And he said, if I had, notice, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, well, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You know, it's one of the, again, amazing things. Jesus makes a statement, and then it comes to pass. And uh, how does he know that? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, God had said, I'm going to send you a prophet like you, Moses. Speaking into the future, some 13 to 1,500 years later, Jesus emerges on the scene and becomes the prophet like Moses. So what do we do with that? Well, uh, what we did is I've gone back into Jeremiah because you start to see a real pattern in Jeremiah's life that is reflective of the life of Jesus. It's, It's as if Jesus is walking into the very footsteps of Jeremiah, not in every way, but in many ways. And if we can see those parallels... And we'll even add it, we'll add another uh, amazing biblical figure this morning. Then we can learn about our own lives. We can get a template for our lives. We can understand what God values and, and what He considers to be heroic. And that's important. I want to know, I don't know about you, but I want to know what God considers heroic. I look around in our culture and I see many things that are deemed heroic that don't appear to me to be heroic at all, certainly not in their outworkings or the fruit. What is it that God sees as courage and a pattern to walk by, a a way in which to live, a way in which to view the world? So if you would, I I, I just want to uh, now look at these parallel lives between Jeremiah and Jesus and then how that might be significant for us. Number one, well, again, both were called to be prophets to the nations. Last week, we looked at this incredible passage in Jeremiah 1 where God says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. If that's true, again, summarizing last week, if that's true, it is a massive 
game changer. I am not a cosmic accident. I don't have to search and seek and go around the world looking for my identity or a reality in which to live something that provides meaning for me. I don't have to. It's already prepared for me. I can walk into what God has already prepared for me. Certainly, Jeremiah did that, but certainly Jesus did that as well. In fact, in John 6, is very clear. He says, my words, Jesus gave us the words of eternal life. Prophetically looking into the future, Jesus was the prophet that was seen. Jeremiah clearly as well. Secondly, both, now both warned, again, as I just referred to, both warned that the nation would one day come in and destroy the temple, but they refused the message. Jeremiah was one, again, that was the Babylonians, Time of Jesus, some, you know, 600 years later, this would have been the time, obviously, of the Romans. So whoever the overlords were, but it's so similar. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is weeping over the city of Jerusalem, warning them time and time and time again. And then Jesus emerges on the scene, and it's the exact same pattern. He's, He's warning that Jerusalem would be overrun. Jeremiah, again... And we'll look at a case this morning where it comes right down to the end under the, under the king Zedekiah, right down, and he says, they're going to come in, don't resist them, they're going to come in and they're, they're going to wipe out man, woman, child, and they would not listen. It was the same during the time of Jesus. But here's where I want to camp a little bit this morning, and this has application, very significant application to your life and to my life, and it is this, what is the pit, the pit? I'll never forget it as long as I live, the first time I ever went to Israel. And we're going to look at not only was Jeremiah in a literal pit, we're also going to even think back about Joseph being thrown into a pit by his brothers. And then, you know, they decided to let him out and he ends up saving the nation, but it was through the pit. So Joseph went into the pit. Jeremiah, we'll look at, went into the pit. Jesus in the pit. But I'll never forget, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, and we'll get into this when we get into Luke 22 a little bit more. He's brought before Annas, and then he's before Caiaphas, the high priest. The high priests were the Sadducees, and they were complicit. They didn't even believe in eternal life. They didn't believe in a lot of spiritual realm or demons or angels. They didn't believe in any of that. They were very happy being the high priest. Can you imagine a high priest of Israel not even believing in the resurrection, not even believing where even the Old Testament does not clearly talks about a resurrection? Daniel 12 and many other places talk about resurrection. But they didn't. They were just saying they had a good life. Caiaphas had it good. He had lived in a palatial place, really, south of the steppes. If you've ever been to Israel in the Armenian Quarter, it's just south of the Armenian Quarter. And you can go down there, and I mean, this is a posh, these are posh digs. I mean, they are, they're not, remember, they're not the Pharisees, and Jesus would constantly come into squabbles and sometimes pit the Sadducees against the the Pharisees, and they really didn't like each other either. But these Sadducees, they were elite. They had money. They had everything going for them. And they finally bring Jesus the night before his crucifixion, and they bring him after the Garden of Gethsemane. They lead him, and they lead him bound into first to Annas and then to Caiaphas's house. And this is the very place that we get Peter, and Peter is doing what? Peter is denying even knowing Jesus. So there is a lot going on outside of Caiaphas's digs. Peter's denying it. Jesus is being, there are false witnesses that are brought forward. They're accusing him of blasphemy. 
Uh, it's just an awful scene if you're a Jesus person. It's an awful scene to think back about. Here is the creator of all things taking on human flesh, and he's being mocked and beaten by the very creation that he came to die for. The largest injustice I've ever seen in my life. You will never find a greater injustice than Jesus taking the brunt of what was due me. Exactly what Isaiah has seen in Isaiah 53. He took the stroke for us. And it was due us. So here's the picture. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but apparently he was kept in Caiaphas's place until early the next morning, according to the Gospel of John, and then he was taken before Pilate. And then we know what happened at the Praetorium. And I've taught both at the Praetorium. I've never, sometimes I see people, if you've ever been on a trip to Israel with me, I've seen people weep more violently in the praetorium where Jesus would have been mocked and scourged and beaten and put on a royal robe and mockery and the crown of thorns on the very pavement in which Jesus was beaten. That would have been the early the next morning and into the next day. And obviously then we'll look later as we go through the gospel of Luke and we'll look at the encounter he had with Pilate. But this, is, this precedes that. And he had, to, he had to be there all night, and the chances are they didn't put him up in one of Caiaphas's guest rooms. And they have found Caiaphas's home now. It is part of an archaeological, you know, uh, just reality that exists. And if you go to Israel, you're, con- you're obviously consumed. And we talked about this uh, when we started. Christianity is, is, is buried right under our very noses. In other words, you can go there and go to real places where Jesus literally lived and preached, and, and you can see all the way back to even to the time of Abraham now with some of, the, or some of the archaeological digs and King David and all the mocking and everything. And each year, archaeologically, things are uncovered and unpacked. And now we see Caiaphas's house, and under Caiaphas's house would have been a jail and in the jail, and still places where they would have put the chains and, and chained people, and then this little three-foot by three-foot hole in which they would have probably tied rope around Jesus and lowered him into the pit to spend the night. Cold, damp, dark. I mean, the crucifixion was bad enough, but having to live in those quarters waiting for what you knew was inevitable because you knew that, in fact, you were the unblemished lamb that was going to, well, like a sheep led to slaughter, as Isaiah had seen some 700 years before. Chances are, and many believe, that that's where he spent the night, would have been in the pit. The thing that I remember most vividly was the first time that I ever took, we took a group and we made our way down those stairs in Caiaphas's under Caiaphas's home, and we kind of got down, and, and then there was this little pit, and down there, there's a lectern, not too different than this right here, and it just perpetually sits, and it's Psalm 88. It's a, a psalm that has more angst in it than just pretty much any other psalm of all the psalms that are written. Now, there are some cries to God, but this, this seems to almost not have a hint of hope in it. And clearly, the psalmist is not only writing, but there's a pattern here. There's a pattern that Jesus would walk into, and as we'll see in a minute, Jeremiah would walk into as well. Okay, you ready? Let's read. Psalm 88. Psalm 88. 
I'm going to read it all. The gravity of it seems hopeless. It's a little bit like Lamentations. It's a little bit like Jeremiah crying out, and there's just not a whole lot of hope, and yet there's these, there's these just moments that are injected that in Lamentations that his mercies are new every day, for instance, in Lamentations 3. We see something similar here, Psalm 88. O Lord, now remember, here I am, first time down in the pit that I've ever physically done, been down there many times, and I am reading this psalm in the pit where Jesus probably would have been held overnight until he was released to go to see Pilate. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. This would have been written roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. If you're a human being, you've been there at some point. God, do you even care? Are you even listening? Do you even hear the loneliness that I have right now, the suffering that I have right now? I had a phone call this week with one of my real precious friends, and his wife is not just going through trauma. She's going through a physical trauma that is full of indignity and challenges in ways that I couldn't even imagine. I was trying to tell Laura about it. I teared up. It just shatters me to think what she must be going through. I'm sure she could find, she could find words right here in Psalm 88 that would express much of what she is going through. My soul has had enough trouble. My life is drawn near to Sheol. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. And you've put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you've afflicted me with all of your waves. Selah. Selah just means it's like a pause. It's a dramatic pause. Selah. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of my affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? In other words, is my death going to accomplish anything, Lord? Can't you save my life? Selah. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave and your faithfulness in Abaddon? Have your wonders, will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I'm overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. And then finally, verse 18, and graciously and gratefully, we come to the end. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Now, how is that even in the Bible? 
I'll tell you the first thing it does, it confronts the idea that if God really existed, then there would be no suffering. Well, you need to understand, you don't know the God of the Bible. Suffering is an inevitable part of living in a world that is given over to chaos and anarchy, a world that has defied God and chooses to go its own way and live in the way it wants to live. The problem is if everybody's allowed to live in the way that they want to live, what happens? We all become shattered because we shatter one another because what you want gets in the way of what I want and what I want gets in the way of what you want and that's true for personal relationships, that's true for familial relationships, that's true for nations, cities, towns and that's why you have raging politics and that's why you have raging ideologies because everybody's trying to step over everybody else and it turns into a literal hellhole. And it's brutal. And Jesus came to identify with us and be in the pit. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk to you just briefly about what Jeremiah went through. Jeremiah also was thrown into a cistern, a pit, if you will. He was living under Zedekiah. Zedekiah was a weak, weak king. What was the last king of Israel, of actually Judah at this point. And uh, the princes, the, uh, the Elohim, if you will, kind of came before him, those, God, those the small gods, and they said, hey, we're sick of Jeremiah prophesying that we're going to be destroyed. And finally, Zedekiah gives in and says, okay, do with him whatever you want to. Just take him and do whatever. And they immediately took him, and they took him under the, the house of the son of Zedekiah, and they lowered him with rope down into a pit, a cistern. And once he got to the cistern, guess what? It wasn't just water, it was mud. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, even suggests that the mud would have come right up to the top of his shoulders. We don't know how long Jeremiah was in that cistern, that damp, dark pit. We have no idea. It could have been a day, it could have been several days. And here he is right up to the pit. Now imagine Joseph as well. He has the vision. Now this. Now we have to really backtrack and go all the way back in time, well before the time of Jeremiah. Joseph, same thing. He has a dream. He declares it to his brothers. His brothers get jealous and envious, and he gets thrown into a pit for the purpose of what? Ultimately for the salvation of his own brothers who threw him into the pit. Strange, isn't it? Here we see this sacrificial pit drop. I don't know how to describe it. You just see it consistently. Jesus knows that. Jesus walks into that. Jesus is willing to go into the pit. And then obviously, Jesus then goes in and makes proclamations to the spirits now departed, according to Peter. And he goes into the pit and then the real pit, the place of departed spirits. So is that what relevance is this? What can we learn from this? Well, first of all, we need to know the rest of the story. Did he get out? Did Jeremiah get out? Yes, he did. And why? There was a guy named Ebed Melech. He was an he was an African. He would have he would have been of dark skin. He was a Cushite, so he would have come from Africa. Africa. He was an, uh, a eunuch, and what he was there and he was Ebed Melech just means he was a slave or servant of the king. And so Ebed Melech, under the risk of his own life, now he was one of many uh, eunuchs that would have been part of that, and they obviously were put in charge of the women because they would have had, you know, they were castrated, and uh, but they would have been strong. They were known to be merciless 
at times and cruel and and but very strong. They would have been around to protect the king and to be around the king and all those kinds of things. And so when Ebed-Melech goes before King Zedekiah and accuses the princes of being evil, it seems very similar to what's happening with Jesus. There's these accusations. You put yourself, you're going to come up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're going to be, you put yourself at great risk. And Ebed-Melech goes back to Zedekiah and says, Zedekiah, these men have acted wickedly. You can see this again in Jeremiah chapter 38. These men have acted wickedly. This Jeremiah, you, should, you need to let this guy go. And of course, Zedekiah is just kind of bouncing around, not knowing which direction to go. And uh, he goes, fine, and take 30 men with you. Why? Because the princes would have overcome them. So here goes a strong African Ebed-Melech. He goes down, and not only that, he's got amazing compassion. Why? Because he stops along the way, knowing he's going to have to get Jeremiah out of this pit. Rather than just lowering this rope down, he stops uh, in the storehouse and gets these old rags. Now, this is very interesting to me. Because why is this even part of the story? He gets these old rags, probably they would have used, either given to the poor or uh, maybe clothing that had been discarded in some way, but they would keep them down in the storehouse and not just throw them away. Maybe they could be used, well, in this case, to get somebody out. So he, he was thoughtful enough. He was so mercy-driven that he was going to go and not just lower the rope and like you know put it, around, put it under your arms and it would have put great strain he, he put all these rags and these cloths around the rope so it wouldn't give him the, you know, the burn and maybe you know, dislocate his arms or something. I mean, he's already, he's, he's acting in such compassion. And he pulls Jeremiah out. And well, if you know the rest of the story, it's pretty incredible because Jeremiah says, they're at the gates. I mean, the, the Babylonians are coming, but I'll tell you this, Ebed-Melech, you will be saved. Nothing's going to happen to you when the Babylonians come running, rolling in. Zedekiah, on the other hand, if you know the story from, maybe I alluded to it last week, his eyes were gouged out. He, his, his sons were slain before his very eyes. I mean, these were some brutal people, these Babylonians, but not Ebed-Melech. What's our takeaway from this? What is it? Well, number one, I think this is important to say. We need to understand that the pit is God's answer to those who would say, if God exists, then all good things should flow, and if there's evil in the world, then it, well, then there's no God. You just don't know the story of the Bible. The pit gives us a place where we can all go. Look, you may be suffering in ways that I can't even describe this morning, or maybe it's even almost inexplicable, but some way you can go Peter says this, share the sufferings of Christ. You don't have to go looking for it, my friend. At some day, it will knock on your door. Suffering knocks on all of our doors. No one escapes. I can just go and I can... I can these words, you say, what hope is there? What comfort is there? Knowing that God himself understands exactly what I'm going through. The psalmist understood it. The great, the great forerunners before us, the prophets understood it. This is not unique to me, and even more so, it demolishes the idea that God must just be angry at me. Now, sin does bring despair. There's no question, but there is that suffering that comes on us sometime, and it had nothing, it has nothing to do with anything in our own lives, it's external. 
This is forever a place that I go, if I suffer, it doesn't mean God's done with me. It doesn't mean God's angry with me. And not only that, it allows me to recognize that Jesus has been right there with me. Paul, in his letter to the Jewish believers of his day, in his letter to the Hebrews, he suffered every way that we did and yet without sin. Doesn't it just somewhere help you when you're suffering to know that Jesus, well, Jesus himself was confined to a very dark and lonely and damp place. Jeremiah was, Joseph was. These are other men and women. We could go through a long list of those who, whether they were in a literal pit or cistern, also have suffered tremendously. There's something about that that gives me courage. There's something about that that says, okay, God, you're going to get me through this because we know the end for all those who, well, followed in Jesus' footsteps. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's not suffering anymore. That day will come for me as well. There's another thing that really grabs me, too, when I think about this. Uh, I, I think when I read Psalm 88, it hits me that, well, sometimes, well, it is actually us in the pit. And sometimes we see that there are Caiaphases above us, and they are, you know, I wonder what happens when they went to bed that night. They're sleeping in their own beautiful, you know, large, you know, king-sized beds and all this, and they probably had a nice meal and probably didn't think a whole lot. They were probably pretty excited. In fact, Caiaphas earlier had said, it's probably expedient. It's expedient for one man to die than all the nation, right? So he prophesied that Jesus' death would actually be something that would, uh, that was actually fulfilled, that Jesus would die for the nation. So they were just trying to sweep this rabble-rousing rabbi under the, yeah, all this healings and the Lazarus being raised from the dead, and, and they were losing their position, and the Romans might get upset and come in and have a big, and we got to get rid of this problem. Let's just sweep this up. And they probably slept really soundly that night. He was finally in custody, deep down, right underneath them, and that still exists today. There are those who say, look, I, I, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in any of this. I just think it's a fairy tale and all that kind of thing. And again, as I alluded to last week, it's a, it's a cry to say, well, what are you crying? You're saying, well, we're all meaningless, you know? I mean, athe to me, atheism is sloppy. It's not, it's, not, it's not deeply thought through. Atheism is a sloppy way to view the world because what you're arguing for is something that you can't even defend because you're arguing your own meaninglessness. So they're looking at the world, and these Sadducees, we don't, believe in, we don't believe in the spiritual realm, we don't believe in resurrection, we don't you're not, we have only a few short years on this planet, do not rock the boat, and they throw you into the pit. Now that can be done socially, it can be done, there are people all over the world today that are in literal pits, in jail, suffering for the cause of Jesus, for the cause, not for a physical battle that they're trying to overcome someone, just merely for preaching the gospel. And they're living in the pit, and they can cling to this. Our Savior was in the pit. We are identifying with the sufferings of Jesus himself. It gives me great confidence. But just get the picture. Those that are just on the on sunny side, and they got their big beds, and they've got a warm meal in their belly, and they're just, they've suppressed the, 
Well, and it doesn't even have to be. Think of it metaphorically. They've suppressed the gospel message and they stuck that gospel message as far down in as deep a pit as they can possibly get right under their own house. They've covered it up and don't talk to me about that anymore. But then lastly, and I would simply say this, the pit gives me hope. There are those that are in the pit that, I, that many of us have been called Well, to comfort, to get out, to bring food, to show mercy to, right? There are people that are suffering all over this globe for the cause of Christ, people who will be martyred. Are we concerned about those who are advancing the gospel message and find themselves in a pit today? Well, we're fine. Nobody ever persecutes me. I don't ever feel anything. You know, I don't even, nobody's ever even persecuted me at all. Do you have a heart for those who are in the pit because of the message that they've been called to proclaim? Do we as a church, are we sensitive? You know, a lot of what we, we do, you know, our brothers and sisters in Israel right now, believing Jews and Arabs are being heavily persecuted. They are in some ways in pits. Are we going to be an Ebed Melek and choose to go down and go to the king and risk our own and whether it be financially or prayer or otherwise, or maybe even sometimes physically going there and and supporting and getting behind those who are paying a great price and been, you know, thrown in a pit for the message that they have, not any different than Jesus or Jeremiah or Joseph or anybody else. All these other pattern detections. Ebed Melech is set up as somebody who is extraordinary, and he is heroic, and I want to be like him. I mean, there's somebody you can really buy into. I wonder how many, if there were 30 of them, and they were all sent to help, then he was probably just, you know, another guy, you know, just one of 30. But we're still talking about him. And that you see that throughout all the Bible. There's somebody that just emerges and they give sacrificially or generously. You see a Barnabas or you see Titus or you see in the New Testament or you go into the Old Testament. Why do we hear? Why are they in there? Because there was risk. There's risk of them either being thrown into the pit or aiding and abetting those who were in the pit but we're still talking about them. What makes these people so incredible? They just stood up and they said, we're going to be courageous. We're not afraid of ending up in the pit ourselves. We're willing to lay down our lives because this message means something. And ultimately, it's going to save because ultimately, Jesus is going to come back. It won't be the Babylonians or the Romans or anybody else. Jesus says, I will come back and I will set all things right. And because he hates sin so much and God the Father, he's going to come back and set all things right. But there will be those, those virgins who never just quite put their oil in their lamps and and they'll be on the outside and the doors will shut and they'll let us in, let us in. Or in Matthew 7, oh, we've done all these religious things in your name. And Jesus will, from the inside out with closed doors, said, depart from me, for I never knew you. You know, our task, church, today is not just to come and be blessed and be lucky people who live in the, the glorified Coachella Valley and all that and have, you know, wonderful meals every day. Our task is simple. We have to identify with Jesus. We have to share the sufferings of Christ. And that may occasionally either put you in a pit or it may... It may uh, put you in a position where you can aid and abed those who are in the pit, but anything to free from this dark pit, the gospel message that Jesus is resurrected and he's coming back. And if you want to avoid the wrath to come, 
Believe into him and you shall be saved. Well, you're not supposed to talk about that. You know, Jeff, I, I don't understand why you don't just preach the, preach the Bible where, you know, just, just give us something that can apply to our life, that make our marriage better. Or make our, and and that, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Just give me a little application that can help my life because the overarching story of the Bible is exactly what we just said. The overarching story is that there is a world that is in absolute rebellion against the God, and God is not going to allow that to happen forever. And we are in an age of grace, and when he comes back, it is going to be no different than the Romans or the Babylonians, and you've got prophets and preachers down here that are still saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the gospel. The good news is you don't have to be. You can be the Ebed Melech. You can be a servant of the king, and you can free the gospel. And I've said from the beginning when we planted this church, we are not just here to provide religious services for religious people. We are a missional church. We will always be a missional church as far as I'm concerned. Otherwise, you don't want me as your pastor anymore. We get, that's why we did the Tales from the Tour. We want to go to a community that needs to hear the voice. And yeah, in the, in the beginning, it's simple, and it's, but the message is clear. The message is clear, and we must make it clear. And then we have to come together and equip the saints for the work of service so that we can do what? We can go back out and be a servant of the king and make sure the gospel message goes to the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? See, Jesus is weeping just like Jeremiah wept and just like Joseph wept. Joseph wept over his family. In fact, in the end, well, he was responsible for the full salvation of his own family and his own people, but he had to hear, first he had a vision, and this is the question. Do you even hear God speak? Do you hear his voice? Not audibly, but do you hear it? Do you, are you in the word enough where he can speak to you? Are you engaged in community enough to where he can speak to you? Do you know what his purposes are for your life? He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. Have you entered the story? Well, we've got to hear him speak. We're going to close with this worship song, still one of my favorites of all time. It's speak. It's simple speak. Lord, speak to me. I'm going to ask you as you're listening to this last worship song, would you, and then we'll do meet the pastors or, or throw things at the pastors, whatever you want to do. Or I think we have a dunking thing where you can throw things and then we get dunked if you, you know, get the Bible answer question right or something like that. Um, but if you hear the Lord's voice, what does that mean? You can hear it through the Word. You can hear it through community. You can hear it. You can just hear it. You wake up early in the morning. You just have a strong sense that the Lord's wanting you to do something. Do it. Don't delay. Do it but we must hear him speak.